This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to another episode of the proudly independent Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Here with co-host Alan Niven. Bonjour, monsieur. Comment allez-vous? Uh, très bien, merci. Good, good. We are going to do sort of a, hmm, shall we call it a new metal episode? In a sense, we, we have a Shannon Larkin from Godsmack. Of course, the band is going out on tour in April with Volbeat. Of course, that's April 2019. Should you be listening to this uh, five years from now? And and on the other side, we have Brendan Mendenhall, or sorry, Brandon Mendenhall and Ray Luzier. Ray Luzier, of course, from the band Corn. We talk about the award-winning feature documentary Mind Over Matter, and we do get an update on what's going on in the world of Corn. But uh, Alan, I'll put this to you first with Shannon from Godsmack and a couple of other guests recently. We talk about the use of backing tracks, and Shannon goes into detail about the rig that they bought and the shows that they used it at, and their final decision on whether they should be using it or not. And then he specifically mentions two songs on the current tour, or currently, that they absolutely use uh, backing tracks to. Uh, So first of all, kudos to him for being open and honest about that. But what is sort of your take? And I know we've probably touched upon it a couple of times before, but... The old backing track thing, have we gone too far down this this road of everything has to be perfect and and if a fan is paying $150, he deserves a show with no mistakes? Well, you know, first off, I've got to point something out. You're talking to an old dog who had his opinions and impressions formulated in a, in a period of incredible music creativity and we had, a, in those days, a sense of purity to the point where the idea of selling your music to a commercial was anathema and a complete and utter statement of compromise of um, artistic integrity. Um, in my own little way, in my own world, my sense of a band is it is what it is, and it's about chemistry, and it's about the moment. And with a couple of bands I worked with, one of them could be sublime, and then two nights later, a total catastrophe. But it was of the moment, and it was real. The other one rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, and were consistently excellent live. We had the attitude of, the point I put across was this, If somebody comes to a show and everybody has a bad night, then I still want those people who paid for a ticket to leave wanting to come and see the band again. So that took work. And a lot of people just seem to cut a corner these days. Um, So my sense of it is that backing tracks are awful. Um, I remember a a tour we did one time... um, Rat were on the bill, Great White were on the bill, and a third band whose name I won't mention. And Bobby Blotzer, who was my neighbor in L.A., he and I would uh, occasionally go and sit out on the stage with a beer in our hands right in front of the, the tape deck of the other band and catch their eye and pretend to go and shut the tape decks down. And this poor band were on there just freaking because... 
they knew Bobby and I would probably do it. Um, and, you know, we left it. But I, th- I think it's wrong. And the other thing that I'd point out is you mentioned ticket price. Um, I would pay to go and see somebody who can really perform. I think if you're charged to go and listen to tapes, get your freaking money back. You uh, you really should get your money back. I mean, if you're paying for a live – let's put it this way. If, if you were paying for a – Volvo or a Saab or, 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 you know, a Porsche and they delivered a, you know, Ford Fiesta or whatever, you wouldn't be thrilled. So why would you pay luxury prices for what, you know, a Kiss show, for example, and then to find out that you were basically listening to uh, something that was recorded in an L.A. studio last summer. I mean, it makes it makes no sense. And by the way, I'm not suggesting Kiss did that, but it makes no sense. You should be getting what you pay for, you know. It, it, <laughs> Und- undoubtedly. Yeah. Undoubtedly, you should be getting what you pay for. And, and there um, seems to be a lot of apologists out there going, well, you know, I'd rather have a good time and I'd rather have that. Well, yeah, you know, when, when I go to a, a fancy restaurant, I order filet mignon because that's what the wife wants. I'd rather have pizza, but I'm not going to pay $65 for the one slice of pizza. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Silly. Yeah. No, I entirely agree. Um, have we gone too far with using tape? I think any use of tape is questionable. I think that if you use tape, it should be abundantly clear to the audience that tape is being played. For example, uh, Metallica at the beginning of the song one at every show they play a tape where there's you know the sounds of bombs and stuff and so the band stays off stage and the and and the lighting is either sort of lugubrious or you know purple or blue and you know that there's stuff going on in the speakers but you also know that there's no band on stage and so therefore it it's just an intro tape and that seems legitimate to me but when you are on stage and you walk up to a mic and you sort of mouth something and you know it's not the real back because listen folks there are a lot of people right now complaining that certain bands are doing the lead vocals on tape but let me tell you for the last 20 years almost 99 percent of the bands have been running backing vocals on tape almost all backing vocals from almost every arena act is is a tape and listen i'm i'm over reaching perhaps but it, it's it really is like nine out of ten bands. Um, well, let me give let me let me give you an, another ask on this. Um, in the way that the music business has devolved, um, you know, back in the day when I was a nipper, I love sounding like an old man. Um, a codger, an old codger, mate. You know, we used to have to go out there and we used to have to play these really dreadful, shitty bars. And, you know, if we were lucky, we got on a tour with somebody who knew what we were doing and we learned everything we could from them. And eventually you acquire a skill and an art in your performance. And, you know, we've got, we've, we've only got six songs that exist. I love you. I hate you. I feel good. I feel bad. The world is great. The world is screwed up. What we fall in love with is the idiosyncrasy and the personality of the performer and the way they express those things. 
Um, and that's part of the skill, too. And if you're a true artist, you get it over. I mean, would anybody describe Bob Dylan as the, gr the greatest voice of all time? No. Um, some people will go, oh, my God, what's Neil Young doing on his guitar? Uh, yeah, they're both being genuine, and they're both incredible artists. And they're in the moment, and they're present, and they're real, and they're not selling you Velveeta cheese off aisle 13, and that's taped music. Yeah, it really is. So let me ask you just this, because you, you mentioned that there's sort of the six tenants or the six versions or whatever of, of songs. Which one does, uh, or where does the Kiss song Burn, Bitch, Burn fall under? Is that uh, I Love You, I Hate You? Or like, where does that go? I'm, I'm confused. It probably goes in my waste paper basket. <laughs> Oh, the joy, the joy of, of Kiss. Uh, here we go. Uh, the band uh, Godsmack, uh, of course, uh, with uh, Shannon. We will get over to Shannon Larkin. Their last album, When Legends Arise, was released on April 27th, 2018. And Alan, I know what you're thinking. How is Mitch going to make this about Kiss? <sighs> well, you've got... already had your Kiss biscuits. So Hold on. on. Hold on. I've got it. I've got it. April 27th is, of course, the day that Ace Fraley was born. <sighs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That is that is talent there. That is talent. <laughs> that is absolute talent, I got to tell you. And uh, speaking of talent, here is Shannon Larkin of Godsmack. We are speaking with uh, Godsmack drummer Shannon Larkin. The band is currently or is about to head on tour with Volbeat all through North America, including uh, Ottawa and Quebec up here in uh, the wonderful Great White North. Uh, good day, Shannon. How are you? I'm really good. I'm sitting in Switzerland. It's a beautiful day at a hotel for a day off on our European tour. Oh, that sounds great. So uh, just quickly talk to me about, well, we'll talk the tour and then we'll look back at your career a little bit, but talk to me about this tour with Volbeat. I mean, to me as a, as a fan, it, it's perfectly matched. Um Talk to me about bringing them out or, or being on them on this tour. Well, you know, we've been, we, we've always liked Volbeat, their music. And, and then next thing you know, uh, one of our tour man, one of our favorite tour managers, Guy Sykes, ended up uh, going and, and being their tour manager. So we met the band a couple times, you know, uh, playing festivals and so forth. And they're really nice guys, you know. And, uh, and then they, they put out their record at, around the same time as ours, which, and it's a kick-ass record. And we think ours is too. So, uh, through Guy Sykes, we, we asked them if they wanted to go out and they said, yes. <laughs> so it made for a great, uh, perfect tour. Yeah, it does. And of course you will be uh, up here in Montreal at heavy Montreal in uh, July. Um, it, talk to me about playing festival shows. Does the presentation for the band change at all? Or is it just sort of the same thing, but on a bigger stage? Well, it depends. You know, if we're, if we're headlining and we uh, have a longer set time, uh, then, then the presentation changes. You know, we can uh, sometimes it's, if we're not the headliner, we just get an hour, for instance, and then we can't do our whole show with the drum solo and all, some, some cool, unique things that we do that some rock bands don't, you know. And then we'll do, we call it the power hour and we'll just play like 15 hits, you know, but, uh, but yeah, uh, as far as like the band's performance, uh, individually, no, we, we, it doesn't, I mean, we're proving it right now. We just played last night 
in uh, Milano, Italy, and it was a club, man. Eight hundred people, completely sold out, but only eight hundred people in, in this small club. You know, we're still paying our dues over here, and uh, but it was it was it was amazing. And we went out, and we the crowd you could hear them singing over the band. It, it was it was just awesome. And we, we, we performed that show as if we were playing in front of 80,000 instead of 800. So it's really no difference there. It's a, you know, production, yes. If we, if we get a bigger room, then we can use our mobilators, which are these rolling drum risers. You know, when we come to Canada, we're bringing them. Don't worry. It's going to be rad. We're excited. We haven't, we haven't toured your country in a long time. I know. And in fact, uh, the last time I saw you here, actually, no, I've seen you since, but, uh, but one of the most memorable times was that, uh, I guess, 2004 tour with Metallica. Absolutely spectacular. I mean, and, and the drum solo, which, uh, listen, I'll be, I'll be frank. I do not like drum solos. I think I'd rather hear another song. But when I saw Godsmack do what they did, I went, okay, they get a pass because it really was unique and different. And in fact, just talk to me about that, that drum solo and, and having Sully and, and sort of this drum off because it, it's not just the, the typical old, you know, rat-a-tat-tat. Could, could we move it along, please? Yeah, well, you know, I, I joined this band and, you know, I'd already known Sully for 15 years and we were, we were bros. And when we met, he was a drummer for a band and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, flash forward when I joined the band, uh, you know, he wanted he wanted to put down the sticks and, and concentrate and learn how to play guitar and be a singer, you know. And so that's one of the reasons that I came into the band, because he played on the first two records. He wanted a dude that, you know, that he could love and back and, and, and trust with the drum parts. And now that dude was me. Like I said, we we'd already known each other. It wasn't an audition. I got the gig. Um, but so when I when I flew into Boston, I, I brought my drums have my drums flown in, you know, but Sully already had his kit set up in there. So next thing you know, here's two drummers with two big drum sets facing each other in a room. So naturally we just sat down and we started jamming. That song, Get Up, Get Out, is like the, uh, I guess you'd call it the bass riff of of the whole drum jam when it's, when it's two of us facing off. And so it was just that beat and, and we started just, whoa, and, you know, he'd already done this thing like in Voodoo and then Get Up, Get Out in the in the early days before I was in the band in which he would do kind of like Tommy Stewart, the first drummer, would have a beat going on and he would be playing like bongos and timbales and they'd do this little like, you know, jam like that. But having the two drum sets facing each other in the room and also what, what makes it, I think, like you said, most people don't even like drum solos, right? But Robbie and Tony are also playing, so it's kind of like it's it's more of an instrumental with drum highlights than a, a yes. drum solo per se. You know? Yes, you're doing that's it how right. It all came together, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah you. you're doing it right because uh, anyway, um, just real quick here, uh, let's look back at some of the history on uh, January thirteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Uh, Candlebox announced that drummer Dave Crewson is stepping aside, and for a little bit, there's no band. And then, of course, in February, on February 8th of that year, you are announced as the new drummer uh, to take over and then uh, continue their tour, with the first show being in Missoula, Montana. Uh, Talk to me about coming into a band under that situation, because it's not just, oh, you were replaced somewhere, now you're the new guy on the album you're in the middle of an album cycle and a touring cycle. What were sort of the challenges there? And, and talk to me about the decision to join Candlebox. Well, firstly, uh, 
I was in a band, a punk band called Amen. And right. we were actually, you know, we, we had just, our management, John Reese, uh, actually managed Amen as well as Candlebox. And so Amen had just completed our first record on Roadrunner with Ross Robinson. And I had a three-month period off in which the label and the management, you know, they need like a three-month period to set up the, the new record coming out. And that right then was, was, was in Dave Cruzen. I don't know. He, he jumped on a unicorn and flew out of the country or something. They couldn't find him. And so I, you know, they called their manager. We, you know, it's two weeks from the tour. And so John Reese called me and said, hey, man, you're off for the next three months. Uh, Candlebox, he's the drummer for the Happy Pills tour. I said, hey, send me the record. I heard that Happy Pills record. I was always a fan, but, you know, I didn't, like, have the records or anything. I'd hear them on the radio and crank it up. But anyway, I get the Happy Pills. I listen to it, and I loved it. I fell in love with it. And I said, hell yes. And so I flew down to L.A. where they were rehearsing, uh, supposedly, well, supposed to be with Dave. But like I said, he just disappeared, man. <laughs> Bless his heart. But that dude disappeared, and they didn't know where he was. So I came in, and they didn't know me. I didn't know them. We jammed. It was awesome. And they're like, you want to go tour? And I'm like, yes. But so I never joined the band Candlebox. To this day, I'm dear friends with them. If I go see them live, I always jump up and play a song off that Happy Pills record. But, you know, I was never in Candlebox. I just, I did the Happy Pills tour. And it was an amazing tour. You, you you were the designated hitter, the, the utility infielder, if you want. Okay, so then uh, talk to me about Amen or Amen and, and establishing that, because it is difficult to get a new band off the ground and going. You, you know, you do Amen, we do We Have Come For Your Parents, and then at some point... Uh, it, Godsmack comes knocking on the door. So, so talk to me about that decision to leave your own up-and-coming band and go to an established band. I mean, obviously, monetarily and, and career-wise, it's it's probably the right choice. But was there some trepidation where you just said, yeah, but this is my band. This is my music. Talk to me about that switch over and then getting to, to the faceless era of Godsmack. Well, firstly, Amen wasn't really my band. Amen is Casey Chaos. And yes, he had, you know, Sonny Toomer, Paul Figg, and myself. And we felt every bit a part of the band. But it was Casey's vision. And Casey Casey Chaos was a punk rock freak, uh, crazy dude, nicest, sweetest dude. But he was crazy and is crazy. And like you know it was such a it was such a punk rock thing like you know when like we have come for your parents you know virgin we're on virgin records right that's a major label and we're a punk band and you know we had this song and it, it was called the price of reality and it was a single and all they asked us to do was was take the word abortion out of the chorus right <laughs> yeah casey sang out abortion candy machine and so they said if you could change that line we might be able to get you guys some success, you know, and put you on the radio and blah, blah, blah. Casey said, put up the middle finger and, you know, the rest is history. The band didn't sell except for in one country, England, and we were good there. But anyway, so I quit Amen. And I, I had just, I was like, I don't know, late thirties, still trying to play punk rock, which is a music I still love, you know, but, and I had gotten married and I was having my first kid and, 
I was like, I don't really feel like a punk rocker. And I'm, I'm not talking about Blink-182, nothing against them, but Blink-182 punk rock or whatever. This was like Stooges, you know, bleed on stage punk rock. And I was, I'm like, I'm going to be a father. So I quit the band Amen. And two weeks later, Sully called me and said, dude, we got rid of Tommy Stewart. I want you to get you in Godsmack. So, see, I didn't have to make some decision and, and give up my band Amen or whatever. I was... I'd already toured, geez, we made two grand. We toured for six years and just beat the crap out of stages and ourselves. And I'm real proud of that era. And I'm real proud of We Have Come For Your Parents as well as the first record. But it was time for me to go anyway. And so I I was going to actually, you know, kind of do session work and give some lessons. And I was, I was enrolling into a hairdresser. My mom was a hairdresser. So I thought, man, I'll be a rock and roll hairstylist, man. I called Ozzy and... He said I could cut his hair, whatever. <laughs> that was my story, man. And then Sully Erna freaking called me and saved saved me and put me into his his badass, big ass band and changed my life forever, man. I, I'm forever grateful to him for that. And it all came from in about nineteen eighty six he saw me play in post band rap child and fell in love with my drumming. And all those years later as we remained friends, boy it, it did pay off, you know. But at the time, it was not about money. I was good with money. It wasn't about fame or fortune, put it that way. Now, of course, being uh, Ozzy's hairstylist or being his stylist probably wouldn't be a bad gig. It would be great hotels and, and a great hey, per diem and, and a great... Uh... Yeah, like I said, I saw my mom, she had her shop. My dad put a shop like in our basement when I grew up. So, you know, I'd see her every day. And she, what her job was was just kind of making people happy and they get up oh thank you Ronnie and hug her and she was like all stoked because she made so much and I'm like it's kind of what I do I get paid to go and make people happy and jump around and dance scream I, you know what I mean it's it's I can liken that it's it's like it's very similar uh as far as you know uh mentally it, it really is so so quickly talk to me about coming into the band though because you know, you look at Awake and you look at Godsmack, multi-platinum albums. Uh, of course, Tommy's on there. When you get to Faceless and it's your turn to lay your drums, is it free reign where you can get to be uh, you? Or is there sort of like, well, this is what Tommy was doing. Can you start? talk to me about coming into that? And, and what was sort of your initiation to the band? All right. Firstly... Uh, you know, a lot of fans and, and, and folks think, well, you know, Tommy's big, big shoes to fill, you know, but what people don't know is Tommy didn't play on those first two records. Sully did. Right. And so, and the point there is that I, you know, influenced Sully's young drumming style. And so he used certain things that I used in major hit songs. For instance, the song, whatever, there's a quarter note China type. In the chorus, that was kind of my signature thing in my band rap child or whatever. It was something that I, I feel I brought to the table in the drumming metal rock world, you know, was that quarter note China thing when you break it into halftime, baby. And, and that was my thing. And so he, you know, was influenced by me as a drummer. And you know, a good example, like when, when he called me and said, hey, man, we got rid of Tommy. Didn't work out. I want somebody I can play in the studio. And so I don't have to worry about it. I want to be a guitarist, too. Uh, he said, this isn't an audition. You know, you, I've seen you play a hundred times. You got the gig, but as long as you can get along with Robbie and Tony, 
So when I was flying, the only trepidation I felt going into that was, oh my God, I hope that Tony and Bobby are cool like Sully and I get along with them because I wanted to be in his band, you know? Uh, and thank God they were. And to this day, I've, I've never even had so much of a, as an argument with any of those guys, you know what I mean? Where, you know, in the beginning, Sully and I, having known each other and been friends, we'd be screaming at each other's face sometimes at rehearsals. But I tell you this, you know, the first thing I did when I got there and I, we were getting along, Sully said, hey, I'm going to go and get some food. Left me and Tony and Robbie together with a riff. And that riff was straight out of line. And Sully said, right, just write me some drum parts, bro. And by the time he got back, I had written that Tom groove. That's the intro and, uh, and the verse. And which is also still to this day my favorite Godsmack drum part. And ironically, it was the first one I ever wrote with the band. But uh, but yeah, he gave me free reign because he he respects me as a musician, and I also have an open mind. Like if I bring a beat to the table and he goes, "Oh man, uh, that's cool," but try this. I I also respect him enough as a drummer, and and I have I, I crushed my ego uh, universally a long time ago. So. This band's perfect for me and perfect for Sully, and it worked out that we could have two dudes like our, like like the dudes we are, and be able to make one drum part without uh, clashing egos. Yeah, and it work it works great now. Of course, uh, the latest album is When Legends Rise. Where do we see ourselves in terms of the next new album? Are are we on sort of a a two three year album cycle, and we'll talk about it later? Or are we already in the process of okay, 2018 was a was a bit ago. Now it's time to get to the next new one. No, no. Historically, if you look at when I joined the band in 2002, our records have come out four years apart, and there's a reason for that. You know, we take a year to write and record the record, and then we we always like to tour, obviously, and so we we tour for a year and a half to two years, and then the rest of the time we take off and we're apart from each other. And that's what I tribute, you know, our biggest badge of honor. You can give, you can look at all the accolades, number one hits, gold records, blah, blah, blah. Well, our, the, our badge of honor that we are most proud of is to be able to say we were a 20 year band successful for 20 years. Not many people can claim that. And it's the hardest business, you know, to even most bands have an average of a two year career, you know? And so to, to say 20 years, that was, that was the thing for us. So, I attribute it to the four-year plan. Put a record out every four years. A, you're not so sat, oversaturating yourself and people are sick of you. And back, usually quite the opposite. They're, they're wanting your new record by the time it comes out, you know. And two, it, it, it lends for time to change a little bit in between each record with some development or, or influence because, you know, you don't want to keep making the same record over when you're a long-term, you know, career band like us. And thirdly, the time apart that that year usually the fourth year that we can take apart well it gives us a chance to do you know other projects uh, sully does solo work that's highly piano driven and tony and i have the apocalypse blues in which we we're doing you know traditional but heavy heavy blues blues rock and what that does is twofold it lets you work with different musicians and producers which is always cool and not you gain knowledge right and secondly when we do get back together after that time apart, man, it makes it new and fresh again. The ideas are brand new. Everything's cool. And, and it makes us also appreciate the thing we have, Godsmack. You know, it's like this, this big machine, you know, that 
that is, has changed all our lives for the better. Yeah. And so that's how we basically do it. We're not thinking about a new record yet. It's the short answer because we're, we're in the, we're in phase two of the touring part and we love our new record. And so, you know, we also are smart. We're not a band that we know that because you know how it is, man, we, you know, we'd like to play the whole new record. We love every song, you know, but in truth, we have lots of songs from our past that we know that our fans want to hear and they deserve to hear. So we'll put as much effort into playing Keep Away from the first record as we do, you know, playing uh, Legends Rise or something off the new one. Yeah. And uh, speaking of, of the live show, I'll just repeat, yeah, you'll be at Heavy Montreal. I will be there. I'll be backstage. I'll, I'll come and say hello. And But I will finish on this. Uh, a lot has been made in the media these days about bands and backing tracks. There is a band on, on a tour right now being accused of lip syncing. And then there's Nikki Six that takes to the airway or takes to Twitter and stuff and says, well, you know, Motley Crue has used tracks because, you know, you, you can't fly in an orchestra and you can't have strings. And what is what's the take for for Godsmack? Are you 100 percent live or is there a little bit of 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 enhancement, which by the way, I'm fine with because, you know, you pay a lot of money to see a show. You want it to be freaking perfect. Listen, man, I like you. and I love this question. You know, I, I, I'm 51 years old, man. So I was thrown aback. I don't know. It was like on seven, eight, nine years ago, 10 years ago, even every band we played with all played on all these tracks. And like, I mean, it's just, let's be honest, you know, people are their second guitar tracks playing, and there's there's all kinds of shit go, uh, stuff going on, you know, uh, backing vocals and the guy's up there looking like he's singing a backup. He's not even singing, you know, and that always that always pissed us off, quite frankly, as a band, Godsmack. And we've never we've always resisted it, right? Well, on the Legends Rise thing, when it was time to to write music that first year, Sully came to us with the idea: Look, we all turned fifty. I'm you know I'm going to go and. Uh, I want to try and write with some outside writers like oh, you know, everybody does it, Aerosmith and all, all our idols. You know, they end up using producer writers and even though all the modern bands from, you know, whatever, Shine Down and all of our peers, you know, they're, they're experimenting with different, you know, sounds and layers on their record and all these, you know, production things that we've never really done. And so Sully's like, you know, I want to try and make a modern, mature sounding record now. You know, we're not young and dumb and full of piss and vinegar and anger anymore you know we're like we feel like we're kind of like elder statesmen now where you know uh, tony and i have both been sober for over three years every the whole band's dynamics change we have kids and families and we're happy <laughs> you know and we don't be fake posers up there acting like f the world or whatever you know we're happy dude so because but you know with that we're also smart and we know that we can't just change our sound and all of a sudden just like get old or something you know so we're like, okay, cool. So he goes to LA and he writes all these songs. Uh, well, for three or four songs with, with songwriter producer guys, obviously Eric Ron is the guy that got the gig and he co-wrote Bulletproof. And so he came back and basically you know, played us, Sully demoed that song. And when, you know, first time we heard it, we, we sat around and he was really nervous because of the synthesizer parts. He thought we'd be like, but oh, it sucks or whatever. So anyway, this is getting to the track live, by the way. And so when we did this, we realized at rehearsals, once we bought into the whole thing, got these producers with all these sounds, that, oh my God, now we're going to have to you know, invest in this system that all the bands are using where it runs tracks 
And then me as the drummer, I have to play to a click track, right? Because that's how the tracks all can land. Like if they're doing a backing vocal, it has to be in, in time. So the drummer has to play to the click, right? So we, since we invested, I don't know, these machines are wicked expensive too. So we invest all this money and get into the modern day world after, you know, having these producers put all these layers of synth and all the, you know, like Nikki Six would say, you know, like, like a, a orchestra or whatever that we can't perform live. So next thing you know, Sully's like, well, you know what? We, we bought into this. Let's just try and do it like all the all the bands we tour with do it. We'll run the click the whole set. And so, okay, you know, I, know, I never really wanted to, to do that, but okay. Because uh, we follow our fearless leader, Sully, right? So next thing you know, we're rehearsing, doing the whole set, all the old songs too. We, we, we charted it, put them on the grid, it's called, you know, and you, you put them on the click, man. One cool thing about it, technology, uh, uh, technologically, is the light show also runs on this grid. So, like every stab and punch or accent, it's all there, perfect, perfect timing. That's why when you see these bands, you know they look perfect and sound perfect. Well, we played. Here's the best part of the story, and why you'll like me. We played two shows like that, and Sully said. <laughs> I won't even say it on radio or whatever, but he's like, F this. And we felt like a bunch of robots, man. We we knocked out every single track and basically ate the investment. And now we have this big expensive system in which we use for two songs. And those two songs, I'll even tell you right now, it's bulletproof. And the only tracks that are running are uh, some spice on the back of vocal because it's a gang vocal. And and the synthesizer parts I keep telling you about because we we've never used them before, right? And all that is is like a bass throbbing sound that that's in the verses that's underneath the actual bass guitar, right? But it does make a difference. It sounds really cool. Sounds great on the radio too. And so and then the other song is Legends Rise. Um, no, I'm sorry. Uh, it's we do Unforgettable now, and that song we brought in a choir from a middle school in New Hampshire of these, you know, like 15, 15 year old kids. And they do this big like gang chorus. And we obviously can't bring, you know, 15 year old kids up on stage every show to sing this. So we also run the track on that song with that, when the kids singing, it's obviously, so we're not even trying to like hide it and, and lip sync and pretend like, we're, you know, it's there. There's a bunch of kids singing. So people know that that's a tape running, but that's it, man. Two songs in the whole set. And there's no there's no second guitars or you know, harmony vocals or lead vocals. It's all that's all live. So there's the long answer, bro. And I love that question because I'm so proud of the fact that Sully and Tony Robbie are with me on that one. I like to be old school. You know what? Zeppelin. Think of Zeppelin. You know they they Jimmy Page would put sometimes twelve different guitar tracks onto the record and they layered the crap out of it and they sounded so awesome but you saw them live it was different but it was still just as great and it was live you know and i don't want to go and if i'm going to go and just see a band that sounds exactly like the record down to the horns that are on tape or whatever it is i might as well sit home and get high and listen to it right absolutely shannon a, a great yeah. a great great pleasure i'm I unfortunately have to move along. I have Bob Claremont and the producer coming up in about six minutes that I have to get to, but absolutely a, a fabulous chat with you today. And 
and I have seen the band before. It is a phenomenal spectacle, and uh, the, the Heavy Montreal show, which is the one I will be at, uh, it's just going to be kick-ass. That, that whole, by the way, they spent $79 million renovating the site that you will be playing. Not $79,000, $79 million. It is glorious. You, you, will, you will love <laughs> wow. it. You will love it, and it is the best catering in the world. Uh, and as we say up here, merci. Merci beaucoup. Thank you so, so much. Merci, and, uh, and thank you for taking the time to talk to me. And uh, do come back and say hello backstage. I'll see you there. Absolutely. Cheers. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And a very big thank you to Shannon Larkin of Godsmack. The band, of course, will be at Heavy Montreal this summer, and I'm very, 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 very much looking forward to that. They are, of course, before then, on tour with Volbeat, a band from Denmark that features the former guitarist for Anthrax. But, uh, Monsieur Alain, let us move over to Mind Over Matter. It is a documentary about Brandon Mendenhall, who was born with cerebral palsy, yet is still able to... That, that that sounds sort of condescending. He, he's a guitarist in the band, the Mendenhall Experiment, and it's been a little maybe tougher for him than some others, but this movie is absolutely um, heartwarming. It was put together by Sébastien Paquet, who is a French filmmaker who has worked with Korn for years. Uh, whenever Korn's on tour, he's there, he's filming, he's doing all kinds of stuff. And, of course, we talked to Ray Luzier uh, as well, the drummer for Korn, who's, of course, played with, uh, well, who? Uh, David Lee Roth, for example. Um, Monsieur Alain, where, where do we go with this? What, talk to me about, or, or maybe talk about movies and music movies, because there's been a lot in the news with Bohemian Rhapsody, the story about uh, Queen and the Dirt, the story about Motley Crue. You and I even in, uh, spoke to Tom Zutat. Um, this one though, is a real story about a real musician who had real struggles and the band Korn, all the guys in Korn actually, not just Ray, who, who befriended this, uh, guitarist, Brandon, and said, you know what, we're going to support you. We're going to help you. We're going to, uh, appreciate what you do. Um, Talk to me about the realness of movies and then maybe some other movies that are sort of like, mm, not so sure about that. Well, you know, far be it for me to uh, suggest I have any expertise in film. I tend to avoid music movies. Um, and you used the word real three times. And while you were doing that, the thought that was running through my head was, you know, Mitch, there is a true and real Motley Crue story, and there is a true and real Queen story. Did we see them? Are you seeing them? Um, I have my doubts. I have a, you know, a minor connection in my past to Motley Crue. I signed them to their first contract, and I got them onto Electra, and. Uh, I was the one who was doing the work and the distribution. You know, Nicky talks about how he self-released his album. No, he brought it, his manager brought the album in and I did the work. He didn't even show up. I was there on the Saturday mornings instead of taking a little time off and putting copies of Too Fast for Love into envelopes and sending them out to radio stations. 
I didn't see a single band member come in to help me with that. So, you know what, Nikki? Screw you, you know? You, n- you never had any appreciation for what was done. Um, um, our, our little company got his band off the ground and through my friendship with Tom Zoot out, um, got him onto Electra. So, you know, and I also know certain things about that band sufficiently that I can tell you that warts and all, nah, if the real warts and the real all were out there, uh, the reviews would be even worse. And the one that I've sent today was horrible movie about terrible people. Um, yeah, that was by Stereo Gum. Stereo Gum wrote a review that said, uh, "What was it? The Dirt, a terrible movie about terrible people." <laughs> Oops. Yeah, and I got and so, and a couple of other journalists sent me reviews of um, of the movie from other locations, and they're all of a consistent reaction. And you know, I'm pleased to see that somebody's calling it out. But if you want to talk about, you know, um, you had a very good turn of phrase when we were in you know, chatting when we first connected about uh, if you want to see a biopic, you want to see a biopic. If you want to see a Hollywood movie, you want to see a Hollywood movie. I mean, you know, Walk the Line, for example, about Johnny Cash, I think was, you know, a reasonable movie that was a Hollywood movie that was a biopic. It's not bad. Right. Um, You want to see a real rock and roll movie? Watch Gimme Shelter and and watch Jagger walk out and with incredible ineptitude, start the set with um sympathy for the devil i think it is and you know with all the mayhem that had been going on at altamont that day not the brightest and most intelligent thing to do but it's really stunning to watch i mean i remember sitting my uh then 11 year old son down to watch it one afternoon and when he saw jagger go out on stage having seen what had happened up until that point, and then start with that song. My little 11 year old turned around to me and said, That wasn't very bright, was it, Dad? Um, you know, and it, one of my favorite movies about music is Woodstock. Sublime moments in it. The, 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 perhaps the most incredible is Santana playing Soul Sacrifice. And then in the back of your mind, you remember reading an interview where he said, I was just coming on. My fretboard was like a snake. And, and you run that through your mind and listen to him play and you go, oh, my God, was he riding with the universe? Brilliant. If you've never seen Woodstock, watch it, if only just for that moment. Yeah, and and I'm going to state what, I was, what we were talking about off air is I was talking about biographies and the books and, and the movies and why I like them and don't like them. And essentially, the reason I don't like them mostly is because if I wanted a bio, when I want to read a biography about a person's life, I want the biography. And when I want to see a Hollywood movie, whether it's, uh, you know, a Marvel pick or, or, you know, Iron Man or what, I want to see Hollywood movie. And I don't want my biographies to be Hollywood movies. And if you look at Bohemian Rhapsody and if you look at The Dirt, it's out of sequence. It's out of chronological order. Uh, some things are changed for dramatic purposes and some things are, are augmented for dramatic. And it's like, well, listen, it, it's either the real story of the band and the person and the, the, the artist or it's not. So if it is, then 
make and if and if the story's boring well then too bad it, it'll be boring and if it's you know super dangerous then super dangerous but but don't make my biography a hollywood movie i mean that that's not the point and so that's why i find them very disheartening or disinteresting because i like i'm a fan of motley Crue. i'm a fan of kiss i'm a fan of the, and i want to go see the thing and then i watch it and i go well that didn't happen I was there. I remember 1980. I, that, that didn't happen. That, that was actually 1987. Why are they saying it? And so then it just becomes a whole point of, well, if that's wrong, if those obvious facts are wrong, then the details must be wrong. And if the whole thing's wrong, well, why am I watching this? It's not a biography. It's, you know, a high being, school writing competition. I mean, you know, yeah. Go no, ahead. You're being sold propaganda. Um, you know, this is how we want to be remembered and you know believe you me alan kovac and and nikki six definitely had their boot on the scriptwriter's neck and certain things were acceptable and certain things weren't acceptable and they wanted it to be seen in a certain way and you know they wanted the movie to end in a certain way but is it honest is there integrity to it i don't know um well obviously i do know but, but, you know, the other <laughs> thing is there's that perception that sometimes people have a misbegotten sense of rock and roll in how ugly can we be. I prefer to look at how brilliant can you be, because to me, rock and roll is the celebration of a free spirit, and it's not necessarily a celebration of nastiness. Yeah, I agree. And uh, on that on that front, uh, I have not uh, candid uh, confession. I have not seen Bohemian Rhapsody mostly because I have no interest in it because of the reasons I just stated. I started watching The Dirt uh, on Netflix. Uh, we literally, my wife and I, got through three minutes, four minutes, and and we saw the first scene of drinking and smoking and doing drugs, and 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 it's just like. And then we, we, in fact, stopped at the part where it says, and this is Tommy Lee. And you see the guy's face and you go, not even fucking close. So, yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm being very, very, uh, whatever, small minded. But, yeah, you know what? Uh, I do the same sometimes when I'm watching uh, a British comedy or something. I just go, yeah, OK, that's not for me. So I will probably watch it at uh, some point, but uh, that point not being now. That said, Newsweek magazine uh, on their website was kind enough to write a review and a story about Motley Crue, The Dirt, and quoted Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. So go Newsweek. <laughs> you know, hey. Well, con congrats. Um, I think you do a very good job of getting good interviews and i think people are very comfortable listening to you and of course i like to sit here and be the uh cynical wise guy um but well done newsweek yeah well done newsweek and uh thank you for the support and of course i will just mention to folks if you would like to support this uh fiercely independent podcast i do have a paypal it is mitchminute at aol.com mitchminute at aol.com and with that let us get over to Brendan Mendenhall and Ray Luzier talking about the uh, feature documentary Mind Over Matter, put together by Sebastien Paquet, who, by the way, 
was the person who reached out and set up the interview with both Ray and Brandon. So thank you to Sébastien, or as we say, since he's French, merci beaucoup, Sébastien. Here is, well, not the one and only, the uh, the two and only. How do I, how do I do my introduction now with two people? The the dynamic the dynamic duo. Ooh, that's a good one. Here we are now, the dynamic duo of Brandon Mendenhall and corn drummer Ray Luzier. We are speaking with a corn drummer Ray Luzier and guitarist Brandon Mendenhall, of course, from the Mendenhall Experience. A good day, folks. How are you? What's up? Good, man. Good. Yes, and uh, just real quick for for the fans, so they know which voice is voice. Uh, I'm just going to quickly say hello to Ray and 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 have you establish your voice, and we'll hit uh, Brandon. Uh, good day, Ray. How how me. are things? Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and and this is me, Mitch. It's yes, me, it, Roy, Roy Laser, War. bucket player for the Corns. <laughs> oh, hey, dude, how's it going? Good. And, and you're, of course, here to reveal all the uh, truth in uh, Van Halen world, right? Is that that what we're here for? <laughs> no, kidding. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you something about the Van Halen. <laughs> They're going on tour. No. Uh, and then, uh, Brandon, you're, of course, uh, part of the Mendenhall experience. And uh, the sort of, is this the, word, the proper word for it? The subject matter of the new movie called Mind Over Matter. Uh, right? Is that the right? Is that the right term? The subject matter. But uh, good day, Brandon. Subject, story. You know, however you want to refer to it as. <laughs> yes, it has a better ring to it. <laughs> yes, it does. So, so let me explain uh, for the folks, for the fans here, what this movie Mind Over Matter is. It is the story of Brandon, who of course has a cerebral palsy, and it's, he's overcome this. Um, what do you call it, ailment, in order to form this band, the Mendenhall Experiment. And sort of the movie is is a very touching and compelling story about how you got the band together and how you overcame all of this. And then, of course, we have to sort of explain to the folks, well, why is Ray Luzier on this uh, on this call? What, what, what does he have to do with it? So, let, Ray, let me go to you first. Uh, talk to me about how you first sort of came aware of Brandon and and his... Uh, strive or, or determination to be a rock guitarist and and be a, a rock star. Yeah, you know it's it's a great beautiful thing, and I I'm always moved and touched by um, everyone in the music business. I mean, we all have different problems and things we deal with on a day to day basis, and that's just if we're quote a somewhat normal person, right? And we don't have any kind of uh, ailments or diseases or anything like that. So it's already rough enough in our world. When someone comes along as, as magnificent as Brandon, um, it's just, it's too, it's, it was such a heavy thing. Our, our um, videographer slash photographer, he traveled with us for many years in corn. His name's Sebastian Paquette, amazing human being. Um, he is the, the writer of this whole movie and, and directed and edited, did everything. And um, he's the one that first turned me on to Brandon. And, I, and then when I first, had, I first heard this, it just gave me chills. You know, it, he's such a remarkable guy for someone to, for a doctor to tell him you're never going to play guitar. And this guy to say, watch me and just take it on, you know, grab it by the balls and just keep going and form a band and actually go on tour, play live. That's a huge, huge, huge thing. So the second Sebastian told me about, uh, the, the whole experiment, I was like, I got to be a part of this and what can we do to help? Or what can we, you know, do to, to, just you know move this along yeah absolutely now you mentioned sebastian paquet uh he did connect this call sebastian are you listening in are you there 
He had to catch a flight, actually. Oh, oh okay, because I was going to ask him about what compelled him to, to write this story and, and put it together. But, Brandon, um, so so talk to me about how you sort of got involved with the Corn Guys and and how long did it take you to get a band together? Because there were these these situations you had to overcome. And, of course, you know, listen, record companies, you, you know, you, you love them, hate them. They are in a business, and when they see something that might be an obstacle – they just move on to the next thing. And yet your determination, your uh, wherewithal got you this deal. So, so talk to me about, about that. So, so yeah, like the band has been around for a little over 10 years now. And the last five years has been like the most successful with the lineup that we have now and all the stuff we're doing with the movie and the touring and the record deal and, all that kind of stuff, um, things really started to take off for us once we found the right guys to be in the band. My whole thing was, you know, Corn inspired me to play guitar. Monkey's whole, uh, how he cut his left right. finger off to... Uh, have to take up the instrument to rehabilitate his his hand okay. actually inspired me to overcome overcome my challenges. Right. Um Ray, just just to, to take up on that because you know, when you get together and you're in a rock band and you put music together you know, it's it's rock and roll all night and party every day, and there might sometimes be a social message, and there might sometimes be, you know, just a, a party message. But when you see how it actually touches somebody like Brandon to the core and sort of makes him refocus his life and, and, and give life purpose, talk to me about that part of music and being in a band and knowing that the stuff you've played on has had that kind of effect. Yeah, you know, I always said the music's way more powerful than people give it credit you know um it, it's i mean how many times do we, we you know bands are selling back people's youth they're getting through hard times they're getting through divorces deaths and families everything i mean it's a it's a it's the only thing for me you know i'm one of those lifers that music means 110 percent of everything that i do on a day-to-day basis so um to have an effect on someone like brandon that 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 you know actually inspire especially someone like monkey that i always say it's the way you know you can put 10 drummers on the same exact drum kit and have them play the exact same beat like back in black or something and they're going to sound completely different it's how they hit it's how they hold the stick well guitar players are the same thing it's how the the strings are struck it's how the chords are played and that's a huge thing and that's why monkey and head have their own complete unique sounds uh no one plays like those guys so for someone like Brennan to see someone like Monkey that has, hey, I have a little bit of, I got my fingers not off in a chain sprocket on a bicycle, <laughs> and I'm still kicking ass. Uh, and Brennan said, I can do this too, you know. And that was a, that's a huge movement in your head because your mind, that's hence the movie name, Mind Over Matter. Your mind is the most powerful thing we have. It controls everything, as we know. But it really, you can. Just tell yourself anything. You can make yourself sick. You can make yourself be the president. You can, if you're determined enough, you can do anything you possibly want to do. I've seen it, and it's proof. And Brandon is proof. 
And it's, that's why this movie, to me, is such an amazing, amazing thing. I mean, everybody has to go out and see this movie. Yeah, you really do. And it, of course, uh, it's won a whole bunch of awards, including uh, Best Cinematography at the uh, 2017 Doc LA Film Festival. Uh, the, the Los Angeles Diversity Film Festival gave it the winner of the Audience Award in 2018 and so on and so forth. Now, where can folks see the movie, Brandon? Uh, is, is this something that's going to head, head over to one of the streaming sites or, or even just uh, up on Apple and you can just buy it? What, where, where do folks get a chance to see it uh, once we get away from sort of the Sundances and the film festival circuit? Uh, well, we're pretty much done with the film festival circuit now. So the film is available uh, digitally everywhere. Uh, you can go and get it from mindovermatterfilm.com. It's available on Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, and uh, all that stuff. So people should definitely go out and check it out, give it a watch, and hopefully they get inspired. It's, it's a, I mean, that I bought mine on iTunes, just not to plug them, but that's, I actually I buy everything that I'm a part of. And that I, you know, Sebastian first showed it to us and I had tears in my eyes the first 10 minutes. It's that moving. And it's, it's, uh, anyone with a soul out there is going to be completely moved by this. And, and it's not like a pity party for Brendan at all. I mean, he's, he's holding his own. There's no, I, I don't underrate him as, as, you know, underneath anybody out there. But, you know, considering his condition and what happened in the band moving forward like this and playing these festivals, and then there's some really funny stuff in the movie, too. It's it's uh, mm-hmm. it's quite entertaining. It really is. So, so Brandon, talk to me about somewhere around 2008, you formed the band around the age of 19, and you teach yourself to play guitar. Listen, I have no ailments whatsoever, and I have no ability to play guitar, no ability to drum. Uh, well, that's why I do interviews because I have no no talent, quite frankly. But but how do you overcome all those challenges and teach? I mean, was it ex- just exceptionally frustrating and painful, and yet you just somehow managed to do it? Talk to me about picking it up and and actually getting good. It's like the uh, like heavy metal for me is like emotional therapy. The music, right? And then the guitar is the physical therapy for through my hand because when I started to play it was my left hand was completely paralyzed I had no individual mobility and no use for it I just didn't use my left hand for anything but I got into music and guitar and wanted to be a rock star right so I just forced myself to make my fingers move I put my hand on my fretboard and just kind of forced them to to move, man. And it was just simple, like one, two, three, four, one, one, two, three, four kind of movements. But over time, over three years, I was able to rehabilitate my hand by playing the guitar. So well, let me let me explore that then. So. As you've learned to play and you got this Mendel, uh, Mendenhall Experiment uh, album out, do you actually, are, are you, what's the word, less disadvantaged? I mean, I know, I know maybe I'm picking some of my words incorrectly, but, but have you actually somehow connected brain and hand to a point where it's functioning in a more uh, normal kind of way? Like, have you 
not cured it, but have you improved? You know what I mean? I found I found a way around it. Like instead of playing standard like bar chords like every other guitar player out there, I tune my guitar to an open chord. So we play everything in drop drop C, which allows me to move like sim- simple one or two finger bar chord movements all the way up and down the neck and play chord. Wow. But to further answer your question, yeah, it has rehabilitated my hand, my speech, my coordination. Doing this music career as a whole has completely rehabbed my life. Wow, that's great. And uh, just uh, just so folks can check it out, though, I, I want to mention the Mendenhall Experiment.com. And Mendenhall is M E N. D-E-N-H-A-L-L, so the Mendenhall Experiment.com. Um, talk to me also about some of the members. You've got bassist Nate Stockton, who was born both, uh, both partially deaf and blind. So what kind of situations does he encounter playing? Is, is uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about having Nate in there. Nate's a funny dude, man. He's, he's like, the dad of the group. He's probably the oldest one. And he's, uh, you know, he's partially deaf and partially blind and he drives us practically everywhere. So we all kind of put our lives in his hands all the time. But he, um, he has a degenerative eye disease. So eventually he's going to go a hundred percent blind. Um, he has extreme night blindness, and, uh, you know, only a small percentage of hearing in each ear. So when he's up there on stage, he's not seeing anybody in front of us. He's barely even seeing us. And he's playing by the vibrations, the feel of the strings and the sound of the amp behind him. Yeah, it's it's amazing, the healing power of music. And uh, real quick... Um, the the album, if I'm, unless I'm mistaken, features uh, a Perfect Circles, uh, Danny Lonher and Monkey, of course from uh, from from Corn. Talk to me about getting them to play with you, and and just what does Monkey from Corn mean to you, both on a musical level, fan level, but also on a personal level? Oh man, getting getting to jam with Monkey in the studio and rebuilding the song Prosthetic. And doing that with him, going into it, I was scared out of my mind, you know, because you don't want to fall flat on your face (laughs) in front of your hero. Um, But having done it and having it been a success, you know, it's it's great (laughs) to have done that and to be able to look back on it. It was just a, a killer day. And um, to have both Monkey and Danny on my debut record, I mean, those those are two of the bands that inspired me to play music, period. So coming out of the gate pretty, uh, pretty strong. But Monkey, on a personal level, dude, I can go to that guy for anything. And he's always there for me. He's always responding to emails and giving me advice and all the corn guys are just great guys 
And Thank you, sir. I owe them everything. <laughs> you know, without those five dudes, great moving, you know? Thank you, brother. I, I wouldn't have the career that I have. You guys that's, have really stepped up for me, and I appreciate that. Yeah, so that's, that's one of the other... Oh, I'm sorry, Mitch. That's one of the other tears uh, I had in my eyes is when Monkey and, and Brandon hug. It's it's just pretty powerful, man. It's like it's a live show. Yeah, so just, just quickly, Ray. Well, I was just going to yeah. ask Ray if possible. You know, when, when, we, when some fans think of rock bands, they think of fast cars, loud guitars, pretty women, and, and, and the sort of vapid existence, and yet... Most bands, uh, through charity, whether it's John Bon Jovi or Gene Simmons and all, have proven that they are not just, you know, mindless, vapid kind of... Talk to me the, about the importance for you as a band to, yeah, go out there and play the shows, and yes, go out and make some albums and blah, but also give back a little bit and, and, and have sort of a social consciousness. You mean for me, Mitch? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Korn's with a band, of all, you know, we're always doing stuff like when we're in Germany, we're always, you know, we did the Wounded Warriors project and went to bedsides and hospitals when, when people couldn't come out to the shows. And we've always tried to give back as much as we possibly can because, you know, we're very, we feel very fortunate to do what we love to do for a living. And, you know, being up on stage and making new records and having the fan base has been so supportive and so amazing to us all the years. You know, we have nothing but to give them the most quality product we possibly can provide and to be as in shape as possible to play live, to perform. So yeah, you definitely, it, it, it it's a definitely a give and take thing. As it should be. Uh, Brandon, did you want to add to that? I was just going to say that there's a, a scene at the end of the movie where uh, we're on stage doing the corn set, me and monkey. And he says to me, or I said, thank you. You know, I wouldn't have made it here without you and your help. And he says to me, no, you would have because it's in your heart to succeed. You would have found a way. And yeah. I said, thank you. And we kind of embrace. But, that's you know, that's, that's my favorite <laughs> part of the movie. And, and honestly, that's one of the things I hold dear to my heart that, you know... Well, just saying it is powerful. Me, yeah. I, I mean, here's Monkey and Head and all the guys. You know, they inspired me to change my life and kind of shape my life and go after this music thing and then to have it come full circle and be able to work with those guys. I mean have them tell me that they're so proud of what I've accomplished, you know, it's, you can't ask for anything better than that. No, you really can't. Um, Ray, just, just before we, we, we say goodbye, let me, let me ask you just quickly a couple of uh, rapid fire corn questions. I know that we're here to talk about mind over matter, uh, but let me just get out these uh, new albums coming out this fall, supposedly. How is the work progressing on on the new sort of corn album? It's, it's sort of corn. Come on, it's the corn. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's coming along great. Um, I am so. Everyone always says like, ah, I can't wait for people to hear this. This tops them all. I'm really so stoked on everything so far. Um, I can't say enough about it. Uh, it's it's really next level stuff in my opinion. 
and I can't wait for everyone to hear it. I can't wait to play these songs live. That's for sure. Um, we're going on tour with um, Allison Chains, right? And Under Oath, and uh, Fever Three Two Three is doing half the tour, and Horror is doing the other half. So we're hitting that in July. Um, tickets are available now, and yeah, I just it's it, it, you know I can't say enough about it. Yeah, I was going to quickly ask you about that. Of course, I noticed there's only one Canadian date in Toronto. Uh, hopefully, what? <laughs> hopefully they'll add a Montreal one to that, because come on. Uh, but yeah, and uh, the Mendel uh, Mendenhall experiment, Brandon, what's sort of going on with you in terms of tour? Are you able to tour? I mean, is that is that a, a, a disrespectful question? Are you able to tour? Yeah, I, I love touring. I mean, it's the number one thing I want to do with my life. And and we have been doing it. Uh, we did three tours last year, and we've got four on the books for this year so far. So um, you'll see us on tour in April. We'll be on the East Coast yep. with our friends in FWA as uh, direct support for FWA. Um like 15 dates with them so that's great we're excited to go out and do that in a few weeks and we're working on a new record writing and gonna start tracking stuff real soon so you'll hear new music from us as well so oh that's fantastic everyone like i'm saying you go out and see the movie it's so inspirational and uplifting on so many levels i can't i'm not just saying it because you know we're on the phone talking about it it really, truly is inspiring and heavy, heavy movie. It's great. Yeah, I got to say, uh, you know, I, I've had a chance to see it, but I, but just before I had a chance to see it, I had seen the the trailers over on uh, YouTube, and even like the minute trailers were very powerful and made you want to cry. So just imagine the whole film, folks. Uh, Mind Over Matter is, of course, available now. Do download it, stream it, do whatever you do, but make sure you see it. Uh, and uh, Ray, always, always a pleasure. And uh, Brandon, pleasure to meet you. First time we had a chance to talk, but uh, absolutely fantastic. And as we say in Montreal, merci, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much to both of you. <laughs> Thanks, Mitch. Thank you, man. Thank yeah. you. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, we will catch you uh, yeah. hopefully both on the road. I love shows and I love seeing everybody. So hopefully we'll get uh, a Mendenhall experiment show and a corn show and we'll uh, come out and check them both out. Maybe you'll see it together someday down down yes. the line. Huh, let's, let's do it. Oh, I think it'd be yeah. great. But both bands would be great, by the way, at Heavy Montreal. That was where that's where it would really hit home for for me at least. That would yeah, be, that would be killer. How do we uh, how do we make that happen? <laughs> well, you know what? Let me let, let me let me let me talk to the folks that I know who run the festival and see if we can make that happen. And of course, Ray, let me just end on this. Uh, you, of course, did play with David Lee Roth. Are, are you loving all those rumors that are out there these days about what's happening? Even though <laughs> it's just sort of internet crazy stuff. I mean, it's it's fabulous. I don't right? know what you're talking about. What do you mean rumors, Mitch? There's no rumors. Ooh, so then there's, oh, therefore sorry. there's only truth. That's great. <laughs> No, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> well, you know that when 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 whoever picks this up, they're going to turn it into that, though. Uh, not me. That's why we leave all the audio no, no, play. No, no, no. It, it's it's fascinating. That's the great thing about rock. Yeah, the mighty Van Halen will live on for to, when we're all dead and gone. Those records will stand the test of time. That's for sure. They're yep. uh, they're the I, Beatles. I had, I had a great eight years with with Dave, and I'd, I'd never regret one one day of it. He's he's amazing, and hopefully they'll do it again. 
Yeah, I agree. And uh, there you go. Th- thank you both. Thanks, man. Have a good day. Thanks, man. Cheers. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaVon. Mitch LaVon.